Maybe it'll be take three again this time. We'll see. Anything's possible. Ain't it fine? This is episode 39. Uh, get this guy off the stage. He stinks so bad. Let's throw some tomatoes at him. Hey, welcome, everyone. Hi, it's nice to see all of your smiling faces out there in podcast land. This is the Anhedonic Headphones podcast. It's season seven. It's episode three, and it is the 39th episode overall since the beginning of the show. My name is Kevin Krein, a.k.a. Kevy Fly, a.k.a. your favorite podcast host's favorite podcast host. I will save the rest of the fine print for the end of the show. Today's guest is a composer and a performer. She is a good friend and regular collaborator with my spouse, uh, Wendy Placco, who is a filmmaker. The two of them have worked together on a number of projects over the last couple of years, and I thought it would be neat to get her on the show and find out what has inspired her. And we have a delightfully eclectic mix of music to talk about and a fun conversation. So without further ado, folks, as you are able, please give a warm welcome to my illustrious guest on today's show, Stephanie Henry. Oh, yes. Let's get weird. (laughs) We're going to get, they're going to be ghosts and aliens, all of that. (laughs) Yeah, we are going to get really weird. Um... (laughs) So, first, I, I'm very appreciative that you were interested in doing this, so thank you so much for taking time out of your day and coming up with a big a list of tunes here and being willing to chat with me about this. Yeah, and thank you for having me. Of course, and before we start talking about all of these pieces, uh, do you want to just give a quick introduction to the folks listening in podcast land, who, um, who you are and kind of what you do? Oh, yeah. Well, my name is Stephanie Henry. I'm a composer, pianist, and educator from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I write music for solo instruments, film scores, chamber ensembles. And so I love a variety of music, and I enjoy teaching piano and voice. Okay. Um, And that kind of brings me to one of my questions that I've been asking on this show since 2020, um, in terms of folks who are involved in performance kind of I I know that you've you have been busy and you have been finding ways to work around the last two years but how has the pandemic kind of reshaped what you do or how you work it's and, made my oh I'm sorry no I was gonna say and has it been difficult to to work around that and still remain creative or has has it been okay It has been okay. Since the pandemic hit, I have been busier than I've ever been as a composer to the point where I had to quit my day job. So it's been (laughs) really wonderful. And it's, (laughs) it's made the arts more accessible since things are online. Yeah. And like I'm working with the school in Colorado in writing pieces for their students. And I don't think that would be, I don't think that would have happened if the pandemic hadn't shut everything down and turned everything into like this digital world. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm glad that like, I I, I know from, cause you've done a lot of stuff collaborating with my wife, Wendy, filmmaker, yeah. Wendy Placco. Um, yeah. But I know that you, since I, you've worked with her, I know that you kind of tangentially, I know that you've been busy with a lot of other things, but I didn't realize you had kind of 
you were working with schools in other states and things had gotten like you were that busy. So that's great. I'm, yeah. I'm happy to hear it. Um, so you have picked a selection of songs, some of which I was not familiar with. Some of them I was very familiar with. And within the order that they are structured, like, are we going autobiographically or how, how did you, how did you select these 10 songs specifically? And then kind of, how did you sequence them in this order? Well, I selected songs that helped shape me as a person and a musician and like just different big moments in my life. Okay. I'm gonna make a change for once in my life. It's gonna feel real good. Gonna make a difference. Gonna make it right. As I turn up the collarbone, my favorite winter coat, this wind is blowing my mind. I see the kids in the street, but not enough to eat. Who am I to be blind, pretending not to see them? going to get into these and we're opening with a song that's near and dear to me actually um this album specifically michael jackson's man in the mirror and you and i i think are relatively close in age so i assume your childhood was also filled with a lot of michael jackson a ton of michael jackson i wanted to be michael jackson when i was little (laughs) (laughs) um one of my early so i used to i don't always remember to ask it and some people don't have an answer when i ask this but i used to like the first couple of times i did this podcast i would ask people what their earliest musical memory is and mine was getting the lp of bad and like clutching it in my hands and then shortly after that being really mad that the song leave me alone is not on the lp it's on the cd only same here and my and my parents trying to explain that to me and i was like i'm five i don't know what any of this means but why don't we have this song and they were like well there's this we have to get a cd player and so that's is that your earliest like is is this one of your earliest musical memories this song and this album it is because i remember my sister, it was like a gift my parents got for my sister and I. And I remember being so excited, opening it up, seeing how Michael Jackson looked a little bit different, mm-hmm. but being disappointed that Leave Me Alone wasn't on it as well, because <laughs> I loved Moonwalker, which was like the film that corresponded with Bad. And oh, I was like, Leave Me Alone? so scary. It is. Like watching it as an adult, I would say it's one of the top, I'd say in the top three weirdest things I've ever seen, but I loved it as a kid. Loved it. I was, I was, I don't remember if I rented it or if I saw it um, 
like because it used to air on cable a lot but i remember being a kid and being like wait why is it joe pesci is a bad guy in this and what is what is happening and just being like really unsettled by the entire thing so i'm i'm glad it's not just me but that's neat that you had the same experience. So did you have to, did you all not have a CD player in like the late eighties, early nineties? No, we didn't get a CD player until like the early nineties. Okay. And so I had to listen to leave me alone by watching Moonwalker. One of the <laughs> things that stands out about Moonwalker is that Clay Bunny, who was Michael yeah. Jackson, but his name was Spike and he appeared in a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> yeah, that's for um Speed Demon, right? Yep. The video. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long time since I've watched any of those. Um, yeah, that, that bunny movie. had some attitude too. <laughs> <laughs> tunes off of bad though you selected man in the mirror which is like the big ballad on that one so how did how did you land on this one from this album and kind of this point in your early life well when i was in preschool i was really shy and had a lot of social anxiety and i didn't talk at school and at school they thought i was a mute they thought i needed speech therapy and they would consistently tell my parents oh like something's wrong with stephanie she needs she needs help (laughs) 
And my dad got so frustrated with hearing that. He was yeah. like, no, Stephanie's very intelligent. She can talk. She can sing. And so he made a tape of me counting, singing the ABCs. And he was like, I want you to sing a song. And I chose Man in the Mirror. Oh, wow. And so he recorded that and he passed it out to every teacher who came up to him telling him that I needed speech therapy. And the teachers loved the tape so much, they kept it. My dad had to repeatedly ask for it. And I don't even think he ever got it back. And that was my first memory of music can get you respect. Yeah. I also like that your dad was kind of inadvertently shopping your demo tape around to teachers. Because he he got so frustrated because just because I was shy in school doesn't yeah. mean I have there's some, something something quote unquote wrong, wrong. Yeah. yeah and so well, man in the mirror is a big song and ironically to tell them to like think about things before you take action against a three year old child yeah um when did you kind of come out of your shyness like in terms of like speaking at school. Probably around a year after that, once okay. they got off my back about it, I started <laughs> opening up and talking to other kids more. But yeah, when I first started preschool, I was just really shy. How, I guess this is, has your feelings about Michael Jackson changed at all over the course of your lifetime in terms of kind of like his controversies and things that, you know, the documentary from a couple of years ago and how is it, like if his death impacted you in any kind of way like what are your feelings now in 2022 about Michael Jackson I am still a massive fan of Michael Jackson okay. I never believed those allegations I mean I do find it odd that he hung out with little boys cuz I know my parents wouldn't have let me spend the night in Michael Jackson's <laughs> room no matter how much I begged them <laughs> Like, even if I went to a birthday party at the Neverland Valley Ranch, my dad would have been in every single picture with me and Michael Jackson. So it's hard for me to believe that parents would be like, yeah, you can you can just spend the night with him because he's a superstar. Yeah. But I do think like if I could go back in time and talk to him, I would tell him to watch out for the people he keeps (laughs) around him. He was beautiful. He didn't need to become addicted to plastic surgery. And I do I think his downfall was really sad to watch as a big fan of his. Yeah. It was tough. Cause I mean, like I remember the, his, like, you know, the dangerous album and history and kind of the, just the problems he faced with the, like the allegations at the end of 93 and kind of how that changes the trajectory of his career and his popularity. But I still like, I still appreciated the music and I was, his death was very difficult for both uh, Wendy and I, cause we were both such big fans when we were young. And so it is like, I, I know people have a hard time reconciling a lot of their feelings right now, but I, I think it's like, I just like to listen to the music and remember my childhood shaped by these songs. Same here. Yeah. And he was such, he was like the biggest superstar in the world and he broke so many racial barriers and that's I what I like to, focus on with him yeah um anything else about michael jackson here before we get into um one of the instrumental kind of film score pieces that you've selected oh no just that even out of all of the michael jackson albums bad is my favorite i know people always go for thriller i love thriller but bad will hands down always be my favorite bad has bad is like of the era when you could just keep releasing singles off of an album and 
I mean, over half of that thing was released as a single at some point. And yeah, it's like nonstop hits. Even the, like, even the songs that aren't as good are still great. They're still great. And then you get with Dirty Diana, you get oh to see a God. darker side of Michael Love and more rock and roll. Dirty Diana. That's my favorite song <laughs> off of the album. So good. <laughs> <laughs> So you, as someone who composes, who writes, you have uh, you have a couple pieces on this list that are like instrumental film or TV score uh, works. And so when did you start kind of, if you were singing as a child, when did you start like learning instruments and like kind of learning how to arrange or compose? Well, we can talk more about this when we get to the Simpsons theme, but okay. I played the alto saxophone as a kid before I started playing piano. And I had a really wonderful band teacher that we would study, you know, traditional repertoire, but mm -hmm. she would let us as a band pick out fun songs to play. Okay. And that's what got me really into film scores, okay. being able to study them and perform them. Okay. So the first one on here, and um, I had not thought about Home Alone in this kind of context before but this is a, re a really beautiful piece of music so you picked the main theme from home alone and in terms of like what where are we in your life right now and then um kind of what what drew you to this piece specifically home alone was one of the first movies i went to see in the theater as a kid okay and i remember getting home alone and Home Alone 2 for Christmas one year. And I watched them, parts of it, every single day. I know every line and every single note in that score. And that was the first movie where I really fell in love with not just the soundtrack, but the film score, yeah. where I actually paid attention to it because I watched it so many times. And even to this day, if you're like, you want to watch Home Alone? Yes. The answer is always yes. And that was the my first, I guess it shined a light on film scoring for me where I okay. paid attention and was like, Oh, this is something that I could do because I really love this. Yeah. And it happens to be in one of my favorite movies of all time by a really great film composer. And he was challenged with the task of creating a Christmas song, but one that would stand up against the traditional Christmas songs. And I think he succeeded really well at doing that. Yeah. I, um, so this is John Williams, and I guess I didn't, I haven't seen either of the first two Home Alone movies in a really long time, so I, I didn't 
remember that he had done the score. Um, and when I think of Home Alone, I think of um, like the more traditional or like the kind of contemporary popular holiday tunes that are used like when uh he's got the cardboard cutouts and everything going against the closed drapes to make it look like there are people in the house and he's playing is it um jingle ball rock or something like something has happened something is playing then and then the like Mannheim steamroller carol of the bells yeah is played in some kind of montage where he's preparing his plans for the house at least in the first one um but so i had like this just taking this out of the context of the film and listening to it as a piece of music i was very i was very surprised at how effective and how um like evocative it is emotionally um, yeah and it immediately yeah. takes you to winter time and yeah. warm feelings and childhood memories and to take it out of the context of the film I love that it does that. It gives you the same feeling as like um, Carol of the Bells or Jingle Bell Rock or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And I always found that fascinating and amazing that you can take something in an idea that's been done so well in the past and make it your own and original and put it in a film. That blew my mind as a kid. And I started, that's when I really started paying attention to film scores. Um, when was the last time, do you watch Home, is Home Alone, um, like a annual holiday film watching for you as an adult? Yes. I watch it multiple times throughout the holiday season. <laughs> um, I, the last time I watched, I think the first one, I was surprised at how violent those movies are. And I know it's like a cartoony, like slapstick violence, but I was, as an adult, I was kind of like, 
wow, I can't believe my parents were okay with me watching this. Or, wow, this is, those guys should be in the hospital or dead. This is so terrible. And so it, it was hard for me to kind of like sit through those, like the climax of each one of those where things get really, really bad. Um, yeah, like being hit with a paint can. Someone went through the film, talked about how much it would cost and how the guys would actually be dead. Yeah. Because <laughs> paint cans are like 11 pounds each. <laughs> Did you, as a as a as a child, did you get the Talk Boy tape recorder from Home Alone Two? No, but I, I wanted the Talk Girl, but I never got it. <laughs> did you have a Talk Boy? Some I did. I got a Talk Boy, and it's still in the house somewhere. I'm oh, trying to figure out where it is. Yeah, I was a very fortunate child. Um, my that was on my holiday list the the year it came out, and still got it. I think it still works. Um, I remember the commercial. The, yeah, we, we, you know, what a, uh, I mean, that speaks volumes of the, like the amount of television that someone might have watched in the, in that period of time and kind of like kudos to whoever wrote the script for those commercials because Wendy and I actually quote that commercial literally all the time. The <laughs> high kids were home early and then the stop slobbering on me. Like, yeah, stop trolling on me. <laughs> We seriously say that shit like all the time. <laughs> it's funny how those commercials are just ingrained in our memories. <laughs> yeah, they really are. Like of all the commercials, the Talkboy one is the one I think that we reference. It's like that one and then the one for the air conditioning at Sears. Um, we talk about <laughs> like all the time. It's like, oh, I'll call, I'll call tomorrow. It's like... T- tomorrow's gonna be hotter hot like yesterday yesterday you said you'd call sears and it's just like why did we watch so much fucking cable as children i don't i don't know yeah cable and vhs tapes so much <sighs> there you go TV themes here back to yep. back. And so the first one is the I Love Lucy theme. And it has been, it had been a long time since I had listened to this. And I for I was reminded of how rollicking and like fun this is. Cause I I, re- I remember I think I would check out tapes of I Love Lucy from the public library and watch oh, wow. it when I was a kid. Um before like because I know it was on Nick at Night. Shout out to, to Nick at Night. Yeah. Turning those old sitcoms into the house of a kid in the late 80s. And me not understanding why things were in black and white. But, <laughs> um, so where are we with this one in, in your life? And kind of how did you come Like, were you a big kind of like old TV person when you were a kid watching like Nick at Night or like things that were in syndication? 
I did. And I Love Lucy, it's around the same time as somewhere in my memory. I remember seeing I Love Lucy for the first time at my grandma's house and being just falling in love with the whole show. And then I became like Michael Jackson and I Love Lucy were the two people I wanted to be when I grew up. (laughs) Because like I Love Lucy, you hear people talk about moguls, like rap moguls, like Jay-Z. Lucy was like the first female mogul because she had this show where she's an amazing performer. She was an incredible businesswoman. And then she broke all of these barriers, taught classes. And she was just overall like a well-rounded performer and also really intelligent. And she was like the first pregnant woman on TV. She fought to have her husband be played by her Mm -hmm. actual husband, who is Cuban. So it was the first interracial couple on TV. And specifically why I chose the Isla Lucy theme, it was my first exposure to seeing a person of color play in an orchestra and write orchestrations. And Ricky Ricardo was so classy. He would leave at night, practice with his orchestra, practice pieces that he wrote where he incorporated like Cuban sounds and mind blowing between Lucille Ball as a person and the character of Ricky Ricardo. Loved it. to watch the simpsons when you were a kid i was even though my mom did not like the show (laughs) we we still watched it and what i loved so much about the simpsons is i I played the alto saxophone and part of the reason i wanted to play the alto saxophone was because of lisa simpson and in band we got to study the simpsons theme and perform it and that was the first piece i remember paying attention to by danny elfman because it's so wild and so fun it was like a newer version of the Flintstones theme. It reminded me a lot of that. And so being able to really study that and perform that and see people's reactions to hearing something that they know and something familiar, I loved it. And from then on, I started paying more attention to TV show music as well as film music. Yeah. Um, I often, I mean, I, my parents were fine with me watching the Simpsons, but I know that uh, my, a lot of like, teachers in my school thought, thought it was problematic that the, the kids were watching the simpsons um i forgot that danny elfman was the did the theme but the theme only and that like the other music in the show is i think i don't know if it was all of it at the in, in the original couple of seasons the like the initial run of the simpsons were done by someone else 
but it's also still is it still a very musical show it was very musical at one point with like episodes that had songs or whole musical episodes and there's like did you have the simpsons sing the blues cd i had songs in the key of springfield and the cd looked like a donut okay (laughs) (laughs) the the first musical simpsons thing the cover is red and the cd does not have anything like a donut on it but it's called the simpsons sing the blues and that has do the bart man oh i remember do the bart man whenever i went went roller skating as a kid they'd play do the bart man (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if it's still as musical as it used to be i stopped watching it around after season 12 and it's been going it's still it's still going yeah based on this and can there's another danny elfman later on are you is who is like your favorite kind of like film tv composer is it him yep danny elfman music is so inspiring and it fits perfectly with the worlds that are created visually and that's always something i've been paying attention to even starting with the simpsons i'm paid attention to how the how important music is to the worlds they're creating around third and fourth grade I loved my sister and I we loved watching music documentaries we loved watching like behind the music and knowing what inspires artists Mm -hmm. how they made it etc and we watched on PBS a documentary about the Monterey Monterey Pop Festival and we saw Janis Joplin performing Ball and Chain and my sister was like oh my gosh who is she and she became (laughs) obsessed with Janis Joplin like playing her music nonstop. There was a documentary she rented every time we went to the video store to the point where the video store clerk was like, do you want to order this? Cause you rent it all the time, <laughs> ordered it, watched it all the time. And so that was like a huge part of my childhood soundtrack was Janis Joplin. And my favorite song by hers at the time was tell mama because it's so wild. And she lets loose in that song. And again, it's another woman who, broke so many barriers and that was one of the songs last song she performed the summer before she died and it represents like freedom to me 
freedom yeah. and just breaking the barriers. And I love how wild it is and how in the end of the song, she takes it to church. It's so good. So good. Um, how is your sister? Your sister's older. How much yeah. older? Four years. Okay. So that's, um, that's cool that you kind of like could share in this with her. Cause I, that's not a huge age different, but like, I guess enough that it would create kind of like, you might not want to be as totally invested in something that she was in into, especially at different times. So yeah. that's neat that that's also fascinating to me that someone who was probably, you know, not even a teenager yet was really into Janis Joplin. Yeah. It was because that performance. And then when we rented the documentary and seeing the documentary so many times, her performances were so transcendent and people yeah. would just be in awe, like literally mouth agape at her performances and there was some kind of magic that she had And this brings me to like a little ghost story that goes along with Janis Joplin. So I remember one night my sister, because my sister and I shared a room mm -hmm. and she wakes me up and she's like, we can't sleep in here. And I was like, why? She's like, Janis Joplin appeared in the mirror in the, cause we had a full length mirror in our bedroom. And she told my parents and my parents were like, oh, you loved her music so much. You just imagined it. But we didn't sleep in that room because of that. And years wow. later, I found out that in the mirror, Janis Joplin was dead. Like she had fallen on the mirror and her face was illuminated in a green light. And I was like, if that was Janis Joplin 
showing us in some form. Why do you think she would show herself in that form? And my sister was like, what if it wasn't Janice? (laughs) 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 And so that's Um, what reminds me of my sister a lot. And I, I love Janice as an artist. That's wild. Yeah. And terrifying. <laughs> Isn't it? Because the fact that she said, what if it wasn't Janice, that just made it, added another layer. Yeah. Fear. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything else about Janice and Tell Mama and someone who may or may not be Janice Joplin who's trying to communicate with you when you were a kid? <laughs> no. That's... That's all I have to say. Ooh. That's really great. Really That's fun. Like, this is like the spookiest the podcast has ever been. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember it all very well. Looking back, it was the summer I turned 18. We lived in a one room rundown shack on the outskirts of New Orleans. Didn't have money for food or rent To say the least, we were hard-pressed Then mama spent every last penny We had to buy me a dancing dress Well, mama washed and combed and curled my hair And she painted my eyes and lived Then I stepped into a satin dancing dress I had a split from the side, clean up to my hip It was red velvet trimming and it fit me good and Standing back from the looking glass There stood a woman where a half-grown kid had stood Um, this next one I'm very excited to talk about because, um, when my mom and my dad split up, my mom started listening exclusively to country music. And so this would have been in 1994. So from 94 to 2001, when I left and moved out to go to college, I have a very, like, an unprecedented knowledge of popular country music and artists at that time. And so I know so much about Reba and fancy was an absolute bop that we heard in the house a lot because I think my mom had like a best of Reba McIntyre album. But so this is kind of a big departure from the other things on your list here. Cause it's like, she is, you know, an iconic country performer from a very specific time so how how did are you did you listen to a lot of country music at all at any point or how how did we get to Reba and kind of where are we in your life yeah this was when I was 10 okay I was 10 years old and I loved watching all the music stuff so I would record award shows especially if Michael Jackson was performing and I what I recorded one and I was watching it and Reba performed fancy and she was, it was so theatrical because she was fully in character. She came yeah. out in a character, had on her coat. And by the end of the song, she took her hair down. She had on this beautiful red dress. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So when I was 10, I was a massive Reba McIntyre fan. First concert I ever went to was Reba McIntyre's Read My Mind Tour. and. Wow. It was so theatrical, like every song matched the video, like she had a set, like for Is There Life Out There, it looked like the video, like she was at home doing her homework. 
fancy looked a lot like the video. She wore the outfit from the video, wore the outfit from the performance. And that was like, oh my gosh, she tells, creates this, these little stories and becomes the character. And I love how like in a, the span of a four minute song, she can tell a story of someone's lifetime. It was just really incredible. And my mom, my mom's from a small town in Arkansas and grew up in the segregated South. So when I got into Reba McIntyre, she thought it was weird. Like <laughs> I had a Reba McIntyre t-shirt. I had tube socks that said Reba in red that I would wear. But my mom ended up really liking Reba because she was a good influence. She wasn't yeah. singing explicitly about sex. She wasn't wearing a ton of revealing clothing. And my mom took me to that concert to oh, read my mind. Nice. Yeah. Man, I should probably go back and revisit some of that those like big Reba songs from that period of time because I it's wild how when I was a kid I was like, oh, this country music. It's like, oh, this is what my mom is listening to in the car. Or she has all these Garth Brooks CDs around the house, whatever, whatever. But it's like it had such an impact on me that now as an adult, like I can reflect on that and be like these are some really good songs. Like I know these songs, they are a part of me, whether I want them to be or not. And some of these are really great. And I'm like, it's cool that I know them. And so like a lot of Reba tunes at the time I was dismissive of, because I was like a sullen overweight teenage boy. But <laughs> as, uh, as someone not, you know, pushing 40, and appreciative of all forms of music i'm kind of like no reba has hits hits for days and yeah, some of does. these are like extremely good yeah like 90s reba chef's kiss for me because she's an incredible <laughs> songwriter do you i mean did you expand out to other country performers at that time because like 
country had its moment like in the yeah. 90s in terms of kind of like not turning to pop but like being really accessible and catchy yeah because i liked like garth brooks calling baton rouge i like trisha yearwood martina oh, mcbride love i trisha even yearwood. oh that x's and o's song oh loved and went on a judge and the judge <laughs> and then i remember for christmas my mom got me patsy klein a patsy klein tape and loved started loving the older country music as well yeah and so, yeah that's... and I I usually joke when I think about like older country music from like the like the fifties. I'm like, it's both kinds. It's country and western. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that stuff is great. Like going back and listening to like old old country is like really good because the it's very like the twang is so palpable and it's just delightful to hear. It's so good. <laughs> played guitar jamming good with weird and gaily and the spiders from Mars they played it left hand but made it too far became the special man then we were Ziggy's band Ziggy really sang screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdo like some cat from Japan He could lick them by smiling He could leave them to hang They came on so loaded, man Well hung a snow white tan David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust, where, uh, where are we with with your life? If if Reba was when you were ten, you said, where are we now with David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust? David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust. This was probably a few years after that, so pre-teens. Okay. My mom had a tape, and it's going to go along with the next piece, which is a Tina Turner piece. My mom had a documentary about Tina Turner. And in the documentary, she performs with David Bowie. And I was like, who is he? He looks like a handsome vampire. And so I started. (laughs) In this particular performance, he looks so pleased with himself. And there was a lady, she jumps up on the stage and like kisses him on the cheek and he handles it just like a showman. And I was like, who is this? I need to know more about him. And I discovered Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And I was like, oh, my gosh. He told a story about an alien and dressed up Mm -hmm. like this alien. And when I was really little, like four around the time I didn't talk in school, I would tell my family at night instead of going, my body would be to sleep. But I would go to another planet. 
and I described this planet. It was called Dajian, and they had half hair, like half red hair, half orange hair, and they had telekinesis, and they would eat silverware to fuel their telekinesis. Very, very big imaginary world. And to see him create the same thing but use it to tell a story through a rock album, I was like, oh, my gosh, clearly this is my cosmic father. (laughs) (laughs) And to see just to see how theatrical he was as well and performing in all of these different characters throughout his career was really inspiring to me as a songwriter and performer to see that that could be done and be done successfully. Is Ziggy Stardust your, I mean, so your first encounter with Bowie. What song did he do with Tina Turner? Like, I vaguely remember this. It's a song called Tonight. Okay. Um, That's like peak 80s Bowie, because like he did that Dancing in the Streets cover with Mick Jagger, too. Oh, um, I love that video so much. It's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Fun story about that video. Um, In 2008. Wendy and I went as David Bowie and Mick Jagger from that video for Halloween. Who was who? I was Mick Jagger and she was David Bowie. Love and it. We had a big reveal at our party where we played the video and then danced around to it. And what I love about the video the best, the best thing about that video is when Mick Jagger finds a can of soda and just drinks out <laughs> of it randomly while they're just like, like, flailing around in the street and i'm like sir where was that can there's so many things that stand out about that video i love how david bowie's in like a kind of a plain outfit but he has a gold belt because he is david bowie mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> he's got big big trench coat energy um so what is your like is ziggy stardust your favorite bowie song or like your favorite album or is this kind of the one that was just kind of like the access point where you went into him and found like his ability to build worlds and characters almost every album this was the access point to that my favorite bowie song is cat people (laughs) 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 i love that one but yeah this was the first one and i watched documentaries about him and he wanted it to be a musical but he didn't feel like he could do the libretto side of a musical but he could write songs that told the story he wanted to tell and I, I love that it's so inspiring I think about it probably more than I should <laughs> <laughs> Steel 
Um, anything else about Bowie or Ziggy Stardust? Nothing else. It's a good segue into Tina Turner. So I was not familiar with this Tina Turner song, and I was listening to this on one of my stupid little mental health walks that I take in the morning, and I was like, this is wild. Like, this is a wild Tina Turner song that I did not know about. So where, how do we get to Steel Claw? Because this is a, a mystery song to me that I want to hear all about. So the Private Dancer album was one of my favorites of Tina Turner. And I love Tina Turner so much. Like if I were to choose my famous parents, it would be Tina Turner and David Bowie. Because like my mom, she's from a small town in the South, as I mentioned earlier. And everything is black and white because that's what she grew up with. And so like I heard a lot of growing up, I heard a lot. Black people can't do this. Black people Mm -hmm. can't do that. And so like my sister and I, we loved like Guns N' Roses and Aerosmith as well. And um, my mom's like on average, black people don't like this kind of music and hearing that, but seeing Tina Turner similarly to my mom come from a small segregated town in the South, but then she's singing this rock music and steel claw. It's a B side that not a lot of people know about, but it's so underrated and it's so wild and it's rock. And I'm like, see to my mom, yes, black people (laughs) do do things like this. And she was in like her mid forties. Just singing hard rock and with like the Bowies and the Jaggers of the time. And I loved seeing that because it is possible. And I don't subscribe to that way of thinking. And Tina Turner helped me with that and to get out of hearing that constantly. She proved everyone wrong and broke a ton of barriers. Yeah, but Steel Claw, very underrated, hard rock Tina Turner song. Yeah, I was really impressed with how heavy this was. I was just like, gee, she's really going for it on this one. Yeah, because like when people classify Tina's music as R&B, I always I like, this them. I was like, this is not R&B, no. Not at all. And what I find interesting, like 1984, that was another song on Tina Turner's Private Dancer album. Mm-hmm. That's the song that David Bowie wrote. And David Bowie records it, and it's a rock song, but Tina Turner records it. And in this, a similar vein, it's still yeah. rock, but it's classified as R&B. And I find stuff like that really interesting, because clearly she's a rocker. 
Anything else before we switch gears? <laughs> Nothing else. Again, I the, the, the I mean, like this is great. When I I love when people do stuff like this when they send me their list of songs and it's in a specific order. Like they're like, we have to do it in this order. When there's such a contrast between things, I just like I find that fascinating. And I'm like, I want to hear the story of how we get from Tina Turner back to a song from Edward Scissorhands. So <laughs> Danny Elfman once again. Edward Scissorhands, um, where are we now in your life at this point? Because this is a, a tune from the very early 90s, because that's when this film is from. But we're probably much later on in your life. Yeah, this was when I was in college. <laughs> I really fell in love with the Edward Scissorhands soundtrack, and it was a film I would watch frequently in college. And what I love so much about the ice dance because Edward Scissorhands was a modern fairy tale for the nineties and the ice dance immediately brings you into the, that world. And it makes me feel like I'm in a snow globe whenever I hear it. And when I, I do the mental health walks too, especially <laughs> when I need inspiration. <laughs> I'm mean, not just me that is always taking little <laughs> stupid mental health walks like yep. once or twice a day. <laughs> yeah. When I need inspiration, especially And I always go to this song when I need inspiration, no matter what I'm composing, no matter what I'm working on. And I always find inspiration in that because it's so chilling, but beautiful at the same time. Um, Would you consider Edward Scissorhands a a Christmas movie? I would not, but I could see how someone would. Okay. I guess I don't either, but I think because of of the the over arcing theme theme of winter in it I, yeah um, the ice shavings yeah. flying everywhere yeah i yeah. can see how it could be classified as a christmas movie do you i mean are you i'm are you a big tim burton fan or at least like this era of tim burton yes okay. love that era of tim burton and like one of my favorite movie soundtracks and scores ever is nightmare before christmas massive between tim burton and danny elfman i think a lot of their work together is perfect yeah, like the ice dance from Edward Scissorhands, so good. Um, did you ever do you listen to Danny Elfman's? Like, he, I know he was in Oingo Boingo, but like he has some solo stuff too. Do you listen to that like solo, like where he sings, or are you just a fan of his like composing work? I've listened. I like Oingo Boingo a lot. It's weird to listen to because it's like it sounds like Jack Skellington singing songs about like sex. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's so fun. It's fun to visit. And that's actually how he got the job writing the theme for The Simpsons. Matt Groening was a fan of, well, not really a fan. He did a review of Oingo Boingo, like kind of a negative review. And then found, (laughs) liked Danny's work on Pee-wee's Big Adventure and revisited him. And they were just like, okay, that is water under the bridge. (laughs) We can work together as
So we're ending on uh, My Chemical Romance. And tell me how you get into, like, I'm going to guess that you're in college at this point still with this one. So how did you, have you always been a big fan of, like, this kind of, like, theatrical bombastic rock i guess with steel claw i guess but like this kind of very angsty rock music or how how are we getting to this one as the end well this one as the end well i wasn't a super fan of the angsty music but there were like different songs here and there but when i was in college it seemed like every morning on mtv helena was playing and i loved the spooky look i loved the video loved the song and i bought their album and Thank You for the Venom is my favorite song by My Chemical Romance. And specifically at St. Olaf, they have very traditional ways that you do things musically mm-hmm. that I found antiquated, but you have to follow the way they do things. And some of the line, part of the chorus for Thank You for the Venom is so give me all your poison and give me all your pills and give me all your hopeless hearts and make me ill. You're running after something that you'll never kill. If this is what you want, fire at will. And this was like my anthem because they were like, this is the only way to do this. This is the only way you can do this and do this successfully. But I know that's not necessarily the case. (laughs) (laughs) And so you can tell me something and you can put me down as much as you want, but you're not going to destroy the fire that I have to be successful as a musician. And so that's what this anthem meant to me at that time. like part of the rock and roll exorcism that I needed to get out of that really antiquated classical world I was in. <laughs> um, are they a band that you would still like, do you still listen to like, do you still revisit my chemical romance or is this just like very indicative of a time and place for you? I still love my chemical romance. One of my all time favorite bands. Okay. Were you going to go to their reunion show that like has been rescheduled a million times because of the ongoing state of the world? If the tickets weren't like seven hundred dollars, <laughs> I didn't realize that the tickets were seven hundred dollars. But in twenty fifteen, Gerard Way came to First Avenue, and I went and I saw him and cried my eyes out. <laughs> Love him. <laughs> um. Well, we made it. We made it through your musical journey. Yeah. Um. So. Thank you so much for taking the time to pick such a thoughtful list and to chop it up with me about all of this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having of me course. on your podcast. It was a lot of fun. Of course. Um, Before we sign off, in terms of like people finding out about your work and what you're doing, do you have like a website or like is there a place to direct people who want to know more about what you're working on? 
Oh yeah, stephaniehenrycomposer.com. Again, so many thanks to my guest, Stephanie Henry, for stopping by and chopping it up with me. If you are interested in learning more about what she is up to, because it sounds like she's a extremely busy individual with all of the things that she has going on, you can go to stephaniehenrycomposer.com to learn more. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's edition of the Anhedonic Headphones podcast. There are so many podcasts out there in the world. Sometimes it's a little overwhelming, and I appreciate you choosing this one. Thanks. It means a lot. I have been Kevin Krein, a.k.a. Kevy Fly, a.k.a. I am the reason your favorite podcast is no longer your favorite. Uh, if you are so inclined, you can f- like and subscribe and follow and do all of the things that people do with podcasts on their favorite podcast platforms uh, like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Um, Also, I had not mentioned it in previous episodes, but I recently put together a playlist on Spotify. Um, Somebody had mentioned this to me very, very early on in the show, maybe during the first season, that it's something that I should do. And then somebody else recently brought it up again, and I thought, okay, I'll get around to doing this. I've made a playlist of all the music that is available on Spotify, because some of it's not. Some of it is too obscure for streaming services. Some of it has been pulled because of Joe Rogan. Uh, and his misinformation about the pandemic and his racism that he thinks is uh, excusable. So no Joni Mitchell. For all the people who picked Joni Mitchell songs in the first two seasons of the show, your shit is not on this playlist. But I made a playlist of music from the first five seasons of the show. It is 216 songs. It is 14 hours. That is that's so much music. That's so many hours, but it it goes through uh, the first thirty episodes of the show, so you can listen to that on Spotify. It's on my personal Spotify profile. Uh, I am Kev E Fly on Spotify. This playlist is called "You Have Picked Some Songs," because one thing you learn when you edit a podcast all by yourself is. Uh, I say a lot of the same shit every episode. I say so and um, and I say things like, you have picked some songs, or things like, how did we get to this? Or what does this mean? I should probably find some new things to say. I should probably get a thesaurus or something. Um, anyway, if you want to fuck with me on social media, please do so. Twitter, at KevyFly. All my cries for help go on Twitter. Uh, Instagram, much fewer cries for help many more photos of my dog because he's so darn handsome i am also at kevyfly on that as well thank you again for listening i will see you soon i hope you're all doing as well as you are able to be right now in the world please remember to keep washing your hands keep double masking because don't listen to anybody when they tell you the pandemic's over this shit is not over so i'd love it if we all stayed safe and smart uh please also remember that black lives still matter and also Adopt, don't shop. I'll see you later.